Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Sergio Navarretta, a filmmaker whose features include Looking for Angelina and The Colossal Failure of the Modern Relationship, starring friend of the show Enrico Colantoni. His newest film, The Cuban, stars Louis Gossett Jr. as an elderly musician who has a profound impact on the life of his new personal support worker, played by Anna Goya. After premiering last month at the Lovatsa Drive-In Film Festival, The Cuban is now playing in theaters across the U.S. and drive-ins around Canada. Tonight, Tuesday, August 11th, it's screening at the Sunset Drive-In in Barrie, Ontario. Maybe check it out. Sergio picked La Dolce Vita, Federico Fellini's 1960 smash about a disaffected writer named Marcello, played by Marcello Mastriani, who spends a week palling around with Rome's most talented and beautiful artists, only to find that all the glamour in Europe can't give substance to a shallow, empty celebrity culture. And while the film was intended as a critique of post-war European decadence, audiences embraced that decadence, turning La Dolce Vita into an international sensation and sparking a new obsession with all things Italian. Which sort of proves Fellini's point, I think. This is someone else's movie. Being of Italian heritage, I, I like to go for the high drama. And, you know, I was mortified after I had suggested it. I said, I'm going to be with Norm Wilner talking about La Dolce Vita, which university courses have been based on. It's like <laughs> one of the most complex, iconic films of all time. It's like I was kicking myself saying, damn it, why didn't I choose Rocky or Reservoir Dogs or Serpico? Um, and I just realized that, you know, it's my same approach to making movies. I really like challenging myself and, and digging deep into why, why I do things or why I'm attracted to certain things. And that film for me um, changed my life. It, it, I had like a spiritual experience watching it. It's, um, it sort of encompasses um, everything that I am and who I am today because of the way that I was brought up. So my parents dragged me to all these schlocky Italian films when I was a kid and Italian was my first language. And anytime we would watch a Hollywood movie by accident or, or even on purpose, my parents would roll their eyes and say, ah, of course it has a happy ending. You know, that's Hollywood. That's not real life. <laughs> so I, I, that shaped my worldview. And so you know, obviously, I grew up watching, you know, a lot of neorealistic films and La Dolce Vita was sort of at the tail end of that whole, you know, what the war did to Italy was obviously devastating and just plummeted the country and just caused, I mean, not just Italy, but like the whole world. But most, you know, I, I can only speak to personal experiences and stories that I heard through relatives. And, um, and I think neorealism really was a, a direct reflection. It was a social commentary on what was happening. And it was, you know, kind of how artists expressed themselves and kind of took aim at uh, the social political systems and, and even religion, uh, you know. And then leading to 1960, I think Fellini was sort of maybe tired of neorealism. It's sort of like he reinvented it with that movie. He made it more fantastical, more glamorous. But I think you know, for a fact. I mean, I think he was pointing to some very important uh, themes that are relevant today. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think um, having just done Knights of Kiberia like three weeks ago with Peter Sarsgaard, yeah. Uh, yeah. and and hadn't I hadn't seen the film in, I'm gonna say 20 years, probably. And to revisit yeah. it and realize that it is like it's the tipping point for what he'll do in La Dolce Vita because it's aware right. of celebrity and, and it's got all the elements that um, that this film is about, but it is so narrowly focused on someone who is an ex excluded from all of it. She's an outsider wherever she goes. And that comes into conversation with the with the sad clown iconography of it and how uh, and how Giulietta yeah. Messina is just, you know, like so, so beautifully upbeat and optimistic as this world gets uglier and uglier around her. And then La Dolce Vita flips that, right? Because it's somebody who can't experience the pleasures that are on offer all the time in this gigantic world uh, that well, that welcomes him, that wants him to be part of it all the time. And that's a really, like, that's a conversation Fellini's clearly having in his head for the three years between the two movies. 100%. And, yeah, and then he chooses to do it in a fantastical way because 
that's in itself that's the precursor to eight and a half right like this is mm-hmm. such a it's such a an important film in his artistic evolution i think maybe it's the pinnacle i think it's the one where he doesn't fully understand the alchemy that's happening and so he just goes with it eight and a half is much more composed and and more you know the the barriers between fantasy and reality are much more solid this is that liminal experience of just being with mastriani as he uh sort of plays tour guide to fellini's own um psychology right I, i don't know i don't know any other way to explain it but it's such a it's such a fascinating um defining film. I've been trying to think of another director who came up with that sort of identifiable spot on his evolutionary uh, path where you can find, you, you can point to this movie and say, no, it was right here. It was making this movie where you can see everything he was and everything he's going to be all in one would, epic moment. Would you say that Eyes Wide Shut was that for Kubrick? I, well, that's more like a, a culmination, right? Because it's his final film. We can't know where yeah. he would have gone. But I see what you mean. But thematically, it's similar. Yeah, I think so. I think it's um, it's also his last film, so it, we can't know where he would have gone afterwards. And maybe he wasn't planning to make another movie. It, this does feel like after 20 years, he had one statement left to make. But uh, not 20 years, sorry. 11? Full Metal Jacket was 87? Uh, yeah. 12. Yeah. 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 But... but um, yeah, with Fellini, he's got he's got twenty five years of work ahead of him. He's got all the all the fantastical stuff that he hints at here, but isn't fully willing to explore because he's still yeah he's still grounded in his way. It's mm. um, yeah, it's a movie that I just I I watch it and I see him wanting to go in those directions. It's it's the he. You know, wanting to grab the camera and be pulled up the way it happens in Eight and a Half, but he's not there yet. He's still trying to figure out what it means. And that mirrors the storyline, too, which is someone trying to figure out where they are, who they are, what they want to do with their lives. It's, um, yeah, it's just that it's a cauldron of all of the ideas and all of the thoughts all at once. Uh, and it is so beautifully willing to be overwhelmed, I guess. Is what, I'm, yeah. is what I'm trying to say. I, it, it's so impactful too. It's one of those movies you watch and it somehow digs into your subconscious and stays there. Yeah. And even though I, I didn't realize it, you know, a lot of the stuff that I do is, is super influenced by, by Fellini and, and especially this movie. Um, some of the themes that I, I obsess about in my own life, um, you know, in this business, at least... I've had the privilege of going to places like Monaco or Cannes and being around like just extreme excess, like to the point of where, you know, I'm looking at these people going, they have it all. It must be the answer. So it's like this, it's really, I think the movie takes a critical look at the the chasing and pursuit of false gods. You know, the, the opening image is a gold Jesus being flown with a helicopter over Rome, which is a, you know, a direct attack, I guess, at the church, at, at everything that is Italian. And, and in a lot of ways, being Italian, we're, we're indoctrinated into this way of thinking where we're religious and on some level, even if we're critical, it's there. We're superstitious because of all the pagan, um, you know, influences that have seeped their way into our culture. Sure, yeah. And then there's that whole intellectual part, that academic part that says this is all nonsense. So I think Fellini, that's what it felt for me. It was, sometimes it, it's like torment. It's like tor- tormenting to watch La Dolce Vita. It's so, um, it's a tour de force. And I don't know how it affected you, but it, it really, I just, it's, um, it really weighs on me and, and really forces me to look at my own life. And when a film can do that, that's like, it's done its job, you know? And, and this idea of, what are we really chasing? Like the, you know, the American dream is all about that is really, sure. you know, the pursuit of wealth. And then once you have it all, then what? And that's the question, you know, I was fortunate in my life where I met people that had, you know, tons of wealth and they weren't happy. They were miserable. So that's when in my twenties, my wheels started turning. It's like, so 
I've been to parties like that with, you know, where Marcello was kind of like in a place where he should be elated and totally present in the moment and enjoying himself, but he's not, he's miserable, he's isolated and he feels lonely. And I think, you know, that scene is so poignant when he's with his father, because for a moment you see that the humanity in him and, and, and even that's fleeting because his father disappears. And the other thing that struck me watching it again was the, the moment where he's at his typewriter writing his novel and he sees the, the young girl from Umbria or whatever, the young waitress. And you see that twinkle in his eye. It's like that little sliver of hope, you know, and then it, that's fleeting. And then he goes back to his kind of, you know, I guess, restless life. And it's funny how she comes back right at the end to offer him, you know, it's, it leaves it open. It's, it's ambiguous. It's, you know, he's a, I, I think she represents that purity and hope that he once had, but he just looks at her and waves and turns around and walks away. It's like, he's kind of like helpless. And, you know, you know, in American cinema standards, that would be a fail. It's like the arc isn't big enough. He doesn't walk off into the sunset. It's like, you know, it's horrible and it leaves you thinking and wondering, but that's the, the brilliance of uh, a great master, I think. I'm trying to think of how many movies Fellini has made that just end on that note of the, well, we'll get there. Like, <laughs> hoping as a society that everybody, like, Kabiria gets it. Kabiria gets her moment where she can just leave everything behind and walk off into the future unprepared because she's finally got to the point where she can sacrifice the idea of sacrifice, that all the things that were important to her before they're gone. Why why worry about them? Why carry that burden? Just join the parade and walk on and see, see what, what, what happens. happens. Marcello feels, it feels to me like his responsibility, he thinks his responsibility is to cover the parade so he can never join it. He can never fully embrace it. And so much of that mirrors Fellini as a filmmaker, as a spectator, even in things like Amarcord or, or uh, and uh, not so much Roman satirican because those are just much more um, outre visions anyway. But so many of Fellini's films end with him watching someone watch something. I just, this he, further removing the audience as, as the world goes on forward and we're left there and he, the camera is left there, so so are we. And it's, um, it's this fascinating, uh, the, uh, I was going to say the first time I saw the movie was in film school in New York in year one. And, and I, was I was not, not ready, ready for it. For it. I, I, I think, think my... my I would have been 18. My entire experience of Fellini was probably like a, an SCTV parody here or there. I'd, I'd <laughs> never seen any of his films. And, you know, oh, we're going to watch this, and it's three hours long, and everything about it seemed to be positioning me for this is going to be the stereotypical Fellini experience, that you're just going to be overwhelmed forever, and it won't end. Yeah. And I, I liked it a lot, but I didn't love it until I saw it Again, maybe I saw it at the Blur when I saw it properly theatrically. But we saw movies at York in a tiny little theater, and it was on thirty-five, and it looked nice. But it was an old print, and um, a lot of restless eighteen-year-olds, so it didn't really play. And then I saw it at the Blur maybe five or six years later. It was it was the mid nineties. Was it a retrospective? Maybe they used to do retrospectives at the Blur. Maybe, yeah. I'm. I'm now I'm even wondering if I'm misremembering it and I saw it at Cinema... No, I didn't. I saw it at Cinematech the third time I saw it. Um, but every <laughs> every time I watch it, I, I, I'm more open to it. I find myself um, more willing to to surrender, like more, surrender. just more willing to abandon myself to what it wants to do. Because and, and, you know, the more you get to know a movie, the more you... The, the easier it is to take it the second time, even if it's a, a film you don't necessarily like very much because you've already, your brain knows where the map is and you can respond to different things. And, and I just, I find the, the hollowness of the world that he's showing us gets more interesting. Like the, the mm -hmm. vacuum is the thing that fascinates me now. Yeah. Just watching people painted up, suited up, dolled up, whatever you want to call it. These, this garish, idea of what celebrity is and this is from a director who's already been to Cannes a number of times he's won prizes he's oh, yeah. he's already as feted as anybody's going to be for doing the thing they do and his take is just oh god it's I don't like any of this I want to be away from it I want to be sitting at a table somewhere and not having to perform a version of myself 
And this, like th this last viewing, just it felt shattering. And I just don't know what changed about me in the I'm gonna guess ten years since I last watched it, maybe twelve or thirteen even. I don't know why I maybe this is telling me I need to do something else with my more cyn more cynical. <laughs> oh, I'm definitely more cynical. But the movie has always been that cynical. Like that's yeah. what I mean. I, I'm. It's like I. It took me this long to catch up to that. I'm. I'm cynical anyway. Jeez. What's I think what's most depressing about it is really how you know during a conversation once we were sort of joking around and with and playing with this idea of what if we you know remade La Dolce Vita today would it work and that's the terrifying part is that whether you're talking about the paparazzi the media that you know like at his lowest point when he you know he gets punched out in front of the hotel his own friends are there trying to get the shot. Yeah. You know, and it's like society hasn't changed. Like I've spent enough time in LA to know, like, you know, the many, many times I've been in a restaurant and then somebody walks out or walks in and, and there's 50 photographers just chasing them. Like, it's just, it's terrifying. Yeah. Um, the first time I ever seen that was really at TIFF, you know, where, and I was saying to somebody like, what is happening? Like, who are you chasing? And I said, we don't know. We just want to see somebody famous. Yeah. And I was like, that is insane. <laughs> that is <laughs> that's, insane. Yeah. That's actually my favorite part about TIFF is that every time I leave a hotel or a building, there's that moment <laughs> where people go, <gasps> and then they realize I'm nobody and they're like, oh, and I've come to really enjoy disappointing them. <laughs> You're the anti-hero. I okay. am in my own story. Absolutely. Um, I can't help you meet Oprah. I don't think Oprah wants to meet me. Like, that's not going to happen today. <laughs> So maybe it's, it is a certain level of cynicism. It's crazy. I mean, just, you know, our obsession with consumerism and access, we've learned it through this pandemic. You know, I told my son, who's very young, he's, you know, he turned seven uh, recently. And I said, you know, we can't go to the grocery store, perhaps, and find 72 different types of pasta. It, and But that's okay, you know. We're going to have five types that we're really going to enjoy. And so he's starting to learn that. And I mean, we've been spoiled, right? It's our generation has had it all, at least in the Western world and the way we were brought up. I mean, we, we never lacked anything. And, and I think ultimately that's what the, the Dolce Vita is really a commentary on is that this world of access is not going to give you that, that spiritual satisfaction that, that, you know, if you notice, Marcello is very restless and we all know people like that. And maybe on some level, we are that person, you know, um, there's parts of him that we can all relate to. And um, I think when Steiner dies, like Steiner is sort of like um, putting a mirror in front of Marcello and saying, this is who you can become. So he aspires to be this wealthy, successful, cultured man. And then he kills himself and kills his two children. I mean, that's like, it's such a shock in the movie, but what it teaches us, and I think what it teaches Marcello is, you know, again, in pursuit, in chasing the false gods, you're, you're gonna end up potentially like this. So I think that that's really the turning point. And that's where it's sort of like, it, it's less hopeful at that point for me in the movie. It's like, man, he's just lost his hero. Where are we gonna go from here? And, uh, and it leaves you wondering, it leaves you wondering and having a lot of questions. Yeah, it's something that, that that also runs through a number of his movies is the the sense of rot, the sense of like an unsustainable lifestyle that that people are trying to stay ahead of some horrible tragedy that they can never fully avoid. And it's I mean it's mortality obviously, um, but it's also yes, exactly. a sort of a moral decay. And and this movie more than like Roma kind of has it. And well, Roman Satir can both sort of deal with that sort of decadence, but but this one is mm -hmm. uh, this one I find more disturbing because it's believable and reasonable. Like it, the the corruption is incremental. Um, you're you're watching someone in the process of being hollowed out that probably could stop it if he wanted to. That and that's the the great failing on Marcello's part is that mm -hmm. he's so ambivalent about this this world that he's in, which is clearly, if the film's stylized moments are supposed to be from his point of view, he knows his brain is presenting it to him as this monstrosity, this grotesque, but right. he just can't bring himself to say, oh yeah, no, I shouldn't be doing this, any of this, this is all horrible. 
And and the idea that that landed as a shock to people, I think, is incredible. That that no one had made a movie about well, the, the paparazzi as a term didn't exist until the movie coined it, but no one had made a movie about the parasitic nature, right? Like um, previous films like Sunset Boulevard or All About Eve and things like the American noir films that those, the, the, that world that they're in, they made the corruption a metaphor or they made it more about um, a, a symbiotic relationship, like codependency rather than parasitic. And there's just nothing good that comes from what Marcello does. Nothing in his work produces anything positive. He's just stalking people um, and, and are insisting that he has a certain dignity. But the movie sees right through him. And so even though it's from his perspective, it's like this argument that Marcello's conscience is, is directing the film and showing us that this is all for nothing, this is all empty, and you're not doing anything to make the world a better place. Even, you know, the Eckberg in the Fountain, right? It's, they're not really happy. They're just pretending, no. they're, they're acting a version of, of romantic uh, love. And it always amazed me too that that scene is the thing that everybody cites. It is, it's beautiful. Uh, and it's, you know, it's got a, it's got a, a sexual Central. charge, right? Yeah. But it's not a good thing that's happening. Like the, it's just drunk people in a fountain trying to pretend they're not awful people. <laughs> I, I may be a little harsh here. Yeah, I, but he's also obsessed with the image of who she is. But if you notice, as soon as she starts howling and playing with the cat, he's sort of like rolling his eyes like, you know, you just killed this fantasy for me, you know? And <laughs> I just yeah, found yeah. that really interesting, you know, because we're all in the presence of people that we've admired our whole lives. We've all met stars and, you know, there's always that moment of, you know, that disappointment that they don't really live up to your expectation. And uh, I think he, he preferred to, you know, kind of experience the fantasy of her, the Sylvia character, as opposed to the real actress who really, really didn't have much to offer and, you know, beyond uh, her beauty, I guess. Yeah. Well, and the inherent contradiction or not contradiction, the inherent irony in that, of course, is that as an image maker, he's the one responsible for people thinking that she is that person. Like it's... It's his right. own fault. Like she can't, of course she can't live up to his fantasies. He built the fantasy in the first place. He knows it's not true. <laughs> right, right. There's a lot of ironies. That's the thing. It's in, in Italian culture, even la dolce vita. I mean, we use it sarcastically. Like say Norm's doing well and oh, new car. It must be nice. La dolce vita, you know, like it's, yeah. And, and you know, I just thought about this uh, recently too, how Rome has been through it once. Like the fall of the Roman Empire, maybe in, on, in, on some levels, um, it's such an ancient culture and society and city that maybe Fellini was just saying like, you know, this could happen again, don't be so arrogant and let's make sure we have our values. And, you know, he, he was a very thoughtful person. And I sometimes wonder myself, was he spiritual? Did he believe in, in God? Did, like what guided his life? And a lot of these films really, I guess, are a reflection of that, uh, turmoil and, and conscious uh, things that he was, you know, he was dealing with his own demons, I guess, and putting it on film. Yeah, I think there is some sense, I mean, with all of his run-ins with the Catholic Church, I don't know that he would identify himself as a Catholic, but he was a better Catholic than a lot of the people who were professionally Catholic at the time, certainly. Right. Right. Um, and if you, if you see this film as a uh, an exploration of temptation and what it takes to resist it and the you know the whether or not Marcello is resisting it is its own question and, and I don't know that I don't know I think he thinks he is but he probably isn't um, it's it's that weird thing where if you are anywhere close to glamour to celebrity not the people who are making movies on the sets but the the red carpet side, right? The place where you are only there to celebrate. There's no room for critical space. There's no room for consideration of the merits of something. It's just like, what are you wearing? And are, you know, I bet it was great that everybody got together and you all had fun. You were like a family. You know, like we've all been in those situations where the talking points are the only thing that exists and yes. the camera goes on. And, and I just, I, I can't watch red carpets uh, for the Oscars or the Emmys, although now apparently people are starting to push back and it's making it better, but I just, I can't abide the simpering on the journalist side. I just, it's incredibly unprofessional. I, I've 
uh, I mean, it's not. It's not unprofessional, right? That's what they're there to do professionally. And yeah. those guys, yeah, the, the 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 pack journalists who roll around in Rome in the film, but um, I've seen it in Los Angeles. I've seen it in New York, where I've been mm-hmm. just as part of my own work. I've been to a premiere or to. Um, I, I don't go to the parties. I find them all just so creepy. And I also know I don't belong there and everybody knows I don't belong there, which is fine. I, <laughs> it's not false humility. I don't look like I belong in a movie set, which is totally fine. That's how movies work. But yes. I was in New York in 95. I did five junkets in a week. It was like a first week of December Christmas release run through. And one of them, the only one that played to a crowd, usually at junkets, you see stuff in screening rooms. Um, yeah. And then you roll into the to the interviews the next day. We saw Twelve Monkeys. Um, I think it was the Gotham Theater. Is that what it was called on on the Upper East Side? And it was the premiere. It was the world premiere. And for whatever reason, I somehow ended up on the red carpet three feet behind Bruce Willis. And this was in 1995 when Bruce Willis was basically. You know, like one of the giant <laughs> A-list. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he was yeah. huge. And I'm there because I did this whole trip so I could meet Terry Gilliam. So that was fun. But um, I yeah. somehow ended up three feet behind Bruce Willis on the way into a movie theater through the red carpet, through the through the paparazzi. And they were yelling the vilest shit at him to get him to, to react. Demi's a whore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, stuff like that. No I, way. That, that's a verbatim. Wow. Yeah. Somebody, I think somebody, well, wow. it's my podcast. I can swear if I want to. Somebody actually said, I fucked Demi just to see what he would do. And he was, wow. he was fine. He was compl- like, he shut himself off and he walked through and he smiled and he squinted and he did everything right. And I've never been in a place where, you know, and there's, there's a thousand people on the street cheering. This is a huge event. There's the footlights. It's, it's like, imagine a movie, a movie premiere in a movie. That's what this was. Yeah. And somehow a normal, ordinary human being, even if he is a movie star, has to walk through that and endure that for however many seconds it takes. And I just, I was sort of drafting on it. And there was so much energy and tension and rage. Like they were going to come out and grab him at any second. And they won't because that's not whatever happens. But it was horrifying. And that's 35 years after La Dolce Vita. And it's just, yeah, that's the rot. Like the movie La Dolce Vita is telling me what I'm going to experience in 1995. And that was... Yeah, 100%. or it just or it just draws the line for you. Yeah, and yeah, it's weird that I I didn't respond to that either the first time I saw it because you you're a kid and you have no experience of the world and you don't know what the industry does to people. I guess I'm I'm just making excuses for my own ignorance here, but it, you know it was the late '80s. We didn't have the I mean, the internet wasn't around to make everybody even yeah. worse. It's it is now you can watch this movie and just think it's a celebration of that profession because everybody is pretty nice. And they're all, I mean, all the malevolence is underneath. Nobody is outwardly horrible, but the whole thing they're doing is a cancer cell and it's only going to get worse. It is. And it's dehumanizing. Um, Yeah. Even criticism has changed, you know, like it's not an art form anymore constructive. It's taken the human out of the equation, which is horrible. And, it's all for the, you know, for the almighty dollar. I mean, it's like news stations need to sell 30 second ads and toilet paper and whatever. And, and, you know, if it means dehumanizing somebody and and ruining their life, so be it. I mean, it's business. Right. Um, And that's, I never saw that in in Italy, actually. Like I, I spent quite a bit of time with Giancarlo Giannini and we'd be in Rome at a cafe and people would sort of look, and maybe say, Maestro, you know, I love your work or whatever. And he goes, well, yeah, thank you, thank you. But he lives among the people. He lives in Rome and he's just like a part of society and there's a reverence and respect. But not this like, you know, if you're having an affair, I want to expose it so that I can get the shot and make that money. Like, it's just, it's crude. And, um, and I'm glad that Fellini pointed, a, you know, uh, you know, shined a spotlight on that and, and really made a commentary on how, you know, whether it's religion, whether it's parts of this business or whatever, it's, it's really, you know, at what cost do we, per, are we in pursuit of the almighty dollar? Like, it's like, you know, 
And I yeah. think that that's the image of the, the gold Jesus flying over Rome. That, that's what that's about. It's just really like, you know, or the, the, the scene where they're waiting for the miracle. It's the same sort of thing. It looked like a film set. Like there was yeah. an entire production around the, these kids and the family and that, you know, this miracle and it's insane. Yeah. And they're going through something really profound themselves because they need the miracle, right? That's the, the complete removal of human emotion. Yeah. Um, yeah. From, yeah. I mean, if you break up a marriage, if you report on the breakup of a marriage, then maybe the kids find out. You know, like there's always this awful human cost to stuff that's accepted and waved off now. Like the, the, the present day argument is, you know, shouldn't have gone into politics in the first place. It's like, yeah, that's true, but the kids didn't get the job. The, they didn't. Um, you know, yeah. the, yeah, the, um, the 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 royals okay yeah i mean cuz this is happening this week there are some photographs leaked out about one of the princes at the age of 7 and everybody's very upset about this and yeah of course they should be upset about it those are children and they're supposed to be protected and somehow also there there's been the pushback of well the royals are a corrupt institutions like yeah but generations of these people have been born into this thing it's not their call i mean i'm i'm right. glad for harry and meghan walking away yeah. and making a statement yeah. but th- until that happened there was no precedent for well i guess edward and mrs simpson but you know like the the idea of removing yourself from the society that you were born and raised into without any awareness of the world around you that's harder on these people than we think it is than the public thinks it is and it's because we've demonized them for decades through this uh through the industry as you say like they're just it exists and the, the i think about the jesus and it's like the jesus i think about the gold jesus and <laughs> And it's money and status, right? Like it's the combination yeah. of the two. Um, Marcello may not be making the most money doing this, but he is well compensated, but he also gets to live in the world and have a little of that reflected glory. The church and the miracle are coming from two very separate places, but they're still yes. tied up, right? In the, in, the, in the religious awe that drives Catholicism. There's, yeah. um, the systems are designed to keep people chasing the shiny thing um and you spend what two hours and 45 minutes hoping marcello realizes that that's not what he has to do anymore or that the option is there to walk away yeah well i always found it odd as a kid to be in church and then they go around with a basket you know collecting money it's, it wasn't a criticism i just i would ask my parents why are they doing that like i'm here to to reflect on my life to pray for us my family and you know whatever and meditate and and you know i'm getting this plate shoved in my face so i that you know and then of course my dad was a communist so he hated the church so that's kind of how i grew up listening to those kinds of conversations but um going back to your point about the paparazzi a more i guess recent experience that we all felt so viscerally was um lady diana you know when when she's being chased down by those photographers and yeah yeah you know we still don't know exactly how she died. I mean, it was a tragic car accident. How, what provoked it? Who knows? But it's, um, it's just amazing how nothing has changed. Like it's just, you can make La Dolce Vita today and it would be totally relevant and timeless. Yeah. I wonder if there is a modern analog, a way to do it in the present day to account for the internet, to account for, you know, 24 hour news coverage and all that stuff. I'm, I'm always fascinated by the possibilities in that sort of thing, because you would open up, a whole different box, but the core of it would still be the same. I, I mean, I assume it would have to be. Uh, and every now and then people try, but it's always a reference to eight and a half instead of La Dolce yeah. somehow. Like yeah. they always end up confusing yeah. the two and making right. the film about the filmmaker, about the talent rather than the, the journalist. Yeah. I guess it's and because the people making the movie are more likely to identify with the talent. Exactly. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know how self-aware Fellini was. I think he was, in a lot of interviews I heard, he was very, he would get irritated when he had to explain or describe, you know, his intention of, you know, why did Steiner die? And what, you know, what does this mean? And, you know, on some level, I think he was speaking from his subconscious. Um, oh, yeah, I would so say that. The fact that he had to explain it afterwards, I mean, the work kind of obviously speaks for itself. But I wonder why this film has, has had such an impact on so many people and so many filmmakers and people are studying it writing books about it doing courses on it like i wonder if that was even his intention and if if some of the analysis are even you know what fellini had in mind or if it's just like 
an academic construct or interpretation that had nothing to do with Fellini. I don't know. Yeah, like, it, it seems is, like there's a whole industry around it. It is kind of. I mean, you can you can make this argument about almost any movie that doesn't make a direct statement that that works in an right. abstract form but this film more than more than any of his other movies i would say like it's a, it's the rorschach test it's what do you take away from it and that's the yeah. only valid impression but it's also what fellini is saying about you in the experience you have of watching his film your response defines how he would regard you in a strange way and not the film but the filmmaker um right. it just feels like he is leveling a withering judgment against the world that he is hailed in as a master already and he's over it like he just doesn't <laughs> the, he doesn't care what you think of the film right like the movie doesn't care what you think about it it's never going to change it's fixed in time and space but the statement of the movie is look there's a way out take it or don't i can't help you like the, the movie can't tell you how to feel any more than you already do you mm. you bring in uh, your own baggage and it I think that's, I mean, that's obviously a, a really convoluted argument for what all cinema does. The movies never change. We change. And so our, our views different every time. But in this case, like this is the one film of Fellini's where I just find a radically reinterpreting it every time because <laughs> my true. own, yeah, I have curdled like my own take on the industry <laughs> or the industry's getting worse and it's got nothing to do with me. And I'm just seeing it and reflecting You're it back. Observing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, a journal, an American journalist made the mistake of asking Fellini, you know, as Marcello walks away in the final scene, they find his beast on the, on the sand. And he, you know, it looks like there's a glimmer of hope, but does he change? And Fellini's like, you missed the, it doesn't matter if he changes. It matters if you've changed, if it, if it, you know, provokes some kind of thought or, or um, stimulates conversation afterwards at the cafe or, the bar that you go after you've seen the movie that's what's important you know um, oh, i absolutely agree with whereas that. here yeah. we're obsessed with you know save the cat and pet the dog and all these sort of um screenwriting books um that we've all read that point to this idea of like you have to have a, a huge arc where a character starts here and ends here and it has to be a clear you know and i just man that's so hard to i just yeah that's not life i mean our days don't end that way our lives don't generally don't end that way i mean we try to change and be better but do we you know it's <laughs> yeah my my favorite films are the one that the ones that end on a beat of hope on the possibility of happiness um right mm. and then your empathy takes over and that's the perf that's when you stop the movie because we can fill in the blanks we just have to hope that it works out that way this one yeah this is it's much more you know, he doesn't have a profound revelation. He doesn't understand necessarily. I don't know that he knows that he could stop, but the world is telling him to. Like everything around him is pointing in the other direction. And the ambiguity of whether or not he'll even see the, the signpost is fascinating to me because you want to believe you would, but we have an omniscient view as a viewer. We see more yeah. than, than Marcello does. So of course we know, but I don't, my wife has a, a thing where she finds it absolutely excruciating to watch a character make the worst possible decision, even if the right. movie, even if the movie knows that that's happening. You know, your uncut gems, something like that, where the film is actually getting off on watching somebody do the wrong thing. Crash um, and burn. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But 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 you can still be sympathetic to those characters. I mean, part of the the drama is the flaw of that character in that way um i wonder i don't know that she's seen la dolce vita and i wonder how she would take it because it isn't unaware of marcello's shortcomings right it knows who he is better than he does and that's i mean like that's why i think that fellini's choice to end it where he ends it and to just pull away and recede is to suggest that you know, if Marcello doesn't find a way out, if he doesn't realize there is a way out, then this is who he'll always be, and that's the greater tragedy. And it's, mm. you know, if you say it, if you lay it out like that narratively, it's pretty simple. It, it's not a complex film, but the execution of it and the artistry of it is just, it's so enthralling and so, ultimately, so seductive, right? Because, yeah. again, one of those things that stuns me when I think about it, 
there was a massive wave of uh, chic Italian style that, that came out of this movie because people misinterpreted it and just wanted the glamour. It's Which, crazy. It's, yeah. He really played, he, he seduced us with that. And yeah, who doesn't want to be, you know, Marcello in, with a bow tie and those glasses and with the hair. I mean, it's just, yeah. Yeah. Um, but maybe, you know, women today might find it misogynistic or obviously it was told through the eyes and through the lens of, you know, a man 50 years ago. So there's that. But um, maybe, you know, I don't know. It's I guess in the vein of the neorealistic style, it's a slice of life. And maybe it's OK that he doesn't change. And maybe that's the message that people don't generally change. And I can see it in Italy. I mean, just people will sit at a cafe for three hours smoking a cigarette, having an espresso and read like life goes by and nothing really changes. Whereas we we're in this frenetic, I'm in it too. And when I go to Italy, it takes me a month to get into their rhythms of how life is just so slow. And, and um, they're not as affected by the American dream as we are, you know, like if they sit at a cafe for the next 50 years and stare and watch the world go by, they're okay with that. And that's what it felt like at the end. It's like, Oh God, that's so Italian. You know, like, it's just like, Hey, shit happens, you know, life happens and I'm never going to change, but that's okay. You know? Yeah. If, if he does change, it will be incremental. He might just be a little more courteous, a little nicer to people or, or just a little more aware. And that would be a huge improvement for him. That would be, you know, massive personal growth. It's just that, the movie isn't really interested in him because it's already given up on him. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's still part of that world. I, I wonder if, you know, like Fellini would have had more time for him if he, oh, now I'm, yeah, I don't even know what I was going to say. Because um, he's the writer and he controls it and he can do whatever he wants and he just chooses to put him in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I don't know, like what, um, I had the, um, just the great luck and pleasure of meeting the Kubrick family and uh, Jan Harlan and I became friends. So we talked a lot about things and his movies and his career and his life. And um, I said, was he hopeful? Cause I watched clockwork orange and it's just like, Oh my God. It's like, it really shows that innate dark side. Like you were saying earlier about your wife, not liking to see a character just make bad choices and crash and burn. But mm -hmm. yet if there's an accident at the side of the road, we all look. You know, or if there's, you know, like, I mean, there's MMA fighting where there's two guys in a cage kneeing each other in the face to the point where they're bleeding and unconscious. Like, I just think maybe there's an innate kind of dark side to us all. And, and um, you know, um, so my question to, to Jan was, was he spiritual and was he hopeful? He said, yes, of course. That's why he kept making movies. He just kept, it was an exploration of that. It's like at a certain point, we have the, as humans, the choice to do better. And whether we, you know, make that choice or not, I think that's what makes interesting drama and uh, in interesting entertainment, ultimately. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's the constant challenge, right? To to be optimistic <laughs> and hopeful, to, to want things to go well, even when we're pretty sure they're not going to, <laughs> spiritually or otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Some so, of that's cultural too, right? Yeah, I suppose. I'm... Uh, <laughs> I, I was raised Jewish, so we have the hope for the best, expect the worst, and, and figure out same. That, you know, it's just not going to happen same. anyway. It's the same, yeah. Yeah. And, or, or, you know, don't have too high expectations because you don't want to be disappointed. Yeah. All that true. kind of stuff. Though. Pessimists are only ever confirmed happy or surprised. You know, like, <laughs> that's the arc. That's, that's a range of, the range of options available. Um, I did want to ask, though, the... I've told you my red carpet experience and the and the film is all about all of those. And I know that the Cuban just had a drive-in red carpet premiere. So I got to ask about that. What was it like and how did it happen? How does it work? <laughs> well, they, you know, we sort of queued up and, uh, and I heard announced on the big screen that here's the director, Sergio Navarretta and the writer, Alessandro Pichon. And so we just drove up and, stopped and then all the cameras were to our right and on the left were the hosts uh, so you're Rick literally Kevin. driving up drive to... yeah literally drive it's like a drive-through uh big red carpet and then they handed me an ipad that they had sanitized and whatever and we're all in masks and then take the mask off and um it was just i was overwhelmed because i could see 
myself on the big screen, which I hate being on camera. So that was very uncomfortable. Sure. Um, and then I had journalists on the right and then the hosts on the left. And I thought it was going to be sort of like, I'm really happy to be here. I hope everyone enjoys the movie and let the movie speak for itself. But then one of the hosts said, what inspired you to make this movie? And I was just like, oh, my God. Like, it just threw me completely because I wasn't in a, in a I just wasn't in a mental place to, to have a conversation about. It just felt, it felt silly to be having it in that environment. But uh, it all worked out and um, it was very fascinating to say the least. I'll never forget it. Yeah, I just, we're in such a weird place now where even, I mean, just, the notion of glamour as defined by La Dolce Vita doesn't exist right now. You can't. There's no point. There are people, you know, like doing looks in their homes, which is fascinating. And I find kind of lovely and fun, too, watching people. Um, you know, the, the bookshelf behind you has become the status symbol, right? So when somebody shows up with no <laughs> books, that's a comment. And, um, right. Again, it's part of what Marcello does. We want to see who they really are. We want to see into their lives. And we yeah. have this opportunity. I've seen people in their homes and their desks and dealing with their kids and their pets and in the course of trying to perform this version of themselves. And all of that is gone now. So the idea of doing a virtual red carpet from behind, were you actually behind the wheel of the car? Cause that would be even yes. stranger. Yeah. It was strange. Cause I had to physically drive. And yeah. Cause that. you, I was just thinking, yeah. was it, would it have been a limo? No, you can't have a stranger driving no. in this situation. All of these <laughs> mechanics have been disassembled. Yeah. It's, it's bizarre. And you know, somewhere, I also went to York. So somewhere around university, I was thinking and obsessing a lot about uh, true self versus false self. You know, I've had numerous debates about it with my partner, with therapists, with whoever. It's just like this idea of distilling down to who we truly are. And, you know, some, I guess in the more spiritual realms, they call it the soul and, you know, the, the true self. And then we put the mask on and we become the father, the filmmaker, the whatever, whatever. And, um, I just, the other day I did a press conference at Ontario Place and it was so overwhelming just having all those cameras in my face. And, um, and somebody said to me, well, it's okay. You're going to have a mask on, right? So here we are again, putting a different kind of mask, like a physical medical mm -hmm. mask on yeah. to hide who we really are. And on top of that, I put like a bandana around it. So I, it just gave me another layer of protection, you know, but uh, anyway, it's, we're in strange times and, you know, the, this whole idea of true self versus false self for me was the, the core message that I connected to in, in La Dolce Vita. And really, you know, it, it forced me to kind of do some soul searching and distill or, or um, process what happens in the film industry. So right now I'm on a kind of a press, virtual press tour promoting the movie. Mm -hmm. And you want to make sure that that doesn't affect you in a way that, that, ends up staying where it's like you get a good review you're you're you have a high and you know everyone's patting you on the back oh great job you get a bad review and it's like oh i'm doomed i'll never work again like it's it's so extreme and it plays with your emotions and so anyways i mean that's it's all part of growth and the older you get the easier it gets i guess and you know to your earlier point about bruce willis i think eventually you just do this and you just focus on you stay in your lane right yeah you as, as best right. you can yeah, no, you you do the work and you, I mean, we do, we have it too from on the other side of the, of the keyboard, right? <laughs> or the other side of the screen, um, you just have to keep going. Yeah. And eventually if you start, I mean, as a, as a critic, if I start shaping my uh, responses to the way I think the audience wants me to behave, I'm not serving anybody. I'm not serving myself. No. I'm not serving them. I'm not serving the art that I'm watching. Um, all you can do is, is try to be the best version of yourself, right? And as far as La Dolce Vita goes, he's clearly not. And that's that's <laughs> like the crux of the film, the test of the movie is whether he'll figure it out. Yeah, and he has and he has someone sitting at home who apparently loves him unconditionally and says, Come home to me. And even that is not enough to to ground him or to, you know, like so it's yeah, that I mean that's what I think your wife would have a hard time with. It's like he has all these choices you know, where he could seemingly be more integrated, grounded as a human being and, and ultimately happy. But he's out here in the orbit searching for it in this kind of abstract, ethereal way that uh, is, yeah. is just not real. Yeah. Well, they do have better lighting, right? So I can see why he's drawn to it. <laughs> yeah, 100%.
hundred percent. Even in the prostitute's basement with the water flooding and everything, it's still he's in a you know he's a beautiful tux and his hair is perfect and she looks wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's seductive. That's why it's evil, right? Like that's the whole point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just, and oh. as a filmmaker, it just gave me so much joy to revisit a movie that has meant so much to me. And now whenever there's a scene in any of my movies that's quote-unquote Fellini-esque, my cinematographer knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> Poser knows what to do. It's, it's you know, for those who know cinema, they, they get the nod. And for those who are too young to know who Fellini is, well, you know, hopefully they'll discover him at some point. Yeah, that history's not going anywhere. It's just waiting for them. Yeah. That's a nice thing, too. Exactly, exactly. My thanks to Sergio Navarretta, whose new film The Cuban is screening at the Sunset Drive-In in Barrie, Ontario, tonight, Tuesday, August 11th, and at the Starlight Drive-In in Stony Creek next Tuesday, August 18th. You can find future screening information at thecubanmovie.com. Thanks also to Suzanne Cheriton. She knows what she did. Also, I forgot, The Bad and the Beautiful predates La Dolce Vita by like a decade, so there was a sort of awareness that celebrity doesn't guarantee contentment, but Fellini's film does feel like the more considered statement. You can find Sergio on Twitter at SergioDirector, all one word, and you can find La Dolce Vita on Blu-ray and DVD in the Criterion Collection. It's not currently streaming on the Criterion channel, but you can rent it in Canada on YouTube and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where in addition to writing about film and television, I host a bunch of podcasts these days. Go check those out. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. Stay inside. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Dancing in fountains is okay, I think, but let other people have a turn. I'll see you next time.